So this is, uh, this is the ascension. This is the seventh wonder, Jesus' ascension. The ascension is literally Jesus' physical flight up through the sky, through the heavens. Because we know there's at least three heavens identified for us in 2 Corinthians 12. When he is then enthroned on his throne as king. That's the, that's the ascension. It's when he's enthroned as king. That's, yeah. It's very important. The victory over the, the hostile powers, the competing royalties, they were defeated at the cross and resurrection. Even when it says he was declared the son of God by the resurrection of the dead in Romans 1, that, that reference to son of God is a reference to his kingship. You know, he's, he's God's child. That's the main thing. But the, the, the kings were thought to be adopted by God as sons. Now, Jesus is the son of God, and he's declared son of God. He's declared to be king at his resurrection. So he is the king, and then he took his throne at the ascension. And when he took his throne, um, where are the demonic royalties? Where are the demonic powers? Where do they reside and where do they rule from? What does the scripture say? They're the, the prince. The, yes, the, the, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. And even when Jesus returns, right? When the, at, at the rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, it says he descends and then we are called up to meet him in the air. It's the same place that those powers are because they're being eliminated practically now that the theocracy is coming. It's significant that it's in the air. So if these powers are in the air, we read that in Ephesians 6 and um, Ephesians 2, the one we just quoted. It's significant that Jesus, now victorious over these powers, went up into those different regions in the heavens to parade his victory to those defiant powers. In fact, he took them captive and paraded them around the universe, according to Colossians 1 and 2, on his way up to the throne. So it's very significant that he had to ascend because he went through these powers to take his throne above them. Come on. Ephesians 1. This is all in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, which means Messiah King, when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places, listen, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Whoa, where did that come from? He's enthroned, and the next thing you know, Paul's talking about the body. I'll tell you what, we'll get back to that. For now, let's say this. Jesus is king and Lord. He's ascended, and it's significant to him. In John chapter 20, Miriam thinks he's the gardener. Jesus is alive from the dead. She comes looking for the body. The body's not there. The angel says he's not there. She turns around and sees Jesus, and supposing him to be the gardener, she says, Sir, where have you taken him that I may 
take care of the body. And he says her name in response, remember? Miriam. And she says, Rabboni, which translated means my teacher. And she goes and clings to him. And he says, stop clinging to me because I've not yet ascended to my father. So he's jealous for that ascension. Right? Sometimes we want to grab a hold of Jesus outside the resurrection too. We want him, we want to keep him right there. You're alive, that's good enough. He's like, no, 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 you know me in my resurrection, but you need to know me in my ascension too. Right? Resurrection is like our souls are saved. Ascension creates the church. And we have oftentimes like allergies against forming the church God's way which means to Jesus, you're not relating to me in my ascension. You want to cling to me down here where I could be your personal savior, but not create the church. That's relating to me in my ascension. If you think about it, that's pretty significant because it's the ascension where he's physically ruling over the powers of the air. So if we want enough gospel to be saved, but not enough gospel to be the church, I wonder what our relationship is to the powers of the air. Technically, they're defeated, but they still exercise dominion through all these church traditions and other political powers that they inspire. I like the ascension because Jesus is king, and a king always wants a body of people to represent him. The ascension is where Jesus takes his throne as king, which implies immediately there's got to be a people that extend his kingship into the world. <clears throat> so this is good news because Jesus has taken his throne over all the evil powers. He has stripped them. He stripped the powers of the air of their authority and, and he reigns over them. Come on. Jesus rules over the world, all nations. Now we already said that. And by the way, this guarantees his return, which is the eighth wonder, according to Acts 1, verses 10 and 11. It also is good news because we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We share in this victory over the powers. That's in Ephesians 2. But then Ephesians 6 says you're going to have to fight them when they attack. So you're going to feel the squabble, but you're going to do so from a place of victory. All right, so we have the victory, but we're down here. We live above them, but we also live down here. So we have to fight in light of the victory. And in context... By the way, Ephesians, the warfare is all about developing this right here. This is one of the reasons why I have a certain emphasis on, see how slowly I'm doing this as if it's significant? All I'm doing is making underlines. This is why I care about what the body of Christ looks like and acts like on the earth. Why I care about the biblical vision of church despite traditional vision. Because here's why. Because it relates to this. Not because I like to sit around and have coffee and chat and be more fellowshipy. It's because I know this relates to his kingship. And if we don't do body, we're not really fully doing king. When we act as individual disciples who refuse to become family, we're submitting to the powers of the air rather than the power of our king. Because the, the evil forces don't like people getting saved. They hate that. That's terrible. But they really don't like the people coming together and embodying the king who defeated them. 
That they can't stand. So they'll really fight against that. I'm telling you, Paul says this. We think he's just giving a little personal advice when he says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. And don't give place to the devil. He's not just talking about when we, when we get in a little argument or we, we fuss. He's talking about when there's like serious division of the body, the devil gets a place even though he's defeated. So we want to embody the king. And that takes all this advice in Ephesians. Like you got to tolerate, you got to love. You got to create a body. A body is a, an organic community. It's an organic covenanted family. It's not an assembly that just attends. Very, very important. Yeah, at the resur- when, when we're saved, we relate to him at the resurrection. When we become a body, we relate to him in the ascension. It's the, the, the declaration of his ascended lordship is the body being a body. <clears throat> so the implications for discipleship, discipleship includes living life uh, living church life as a family. And most of our discipleship happens within those relationships anyway because we bump into each other all the time. Even the most mature spiritual believers, even a great preacher who actually has a good life and doesn't have a hidden life. Because we've seen the celebrity preachers with their hidden lives and all their sins. What about the good preachers who travel and they preach and they're really great and they have good, wholesome, holy lives? Put them in an ongoing community where they're at home rather than just attending a church, and they're going to have some things to deal with. Because we can take our natural families. That's easier to be yourself, and you get forgiveness easy. We all know each other. But when the people you sit with in church see you in those ways, that takes a different level of humility and development. And what's my point in saying all this? Well, discipleship happens in just developing family. That's the implication for discipleship, that a part of discipleship is the actual formation of of real Jesus communities, or the New Testament calls them churches. The Greek word is ekklesia, in singular, church. Each individual disciple has a responsibility to be immersed in a local body and to contribute as an important member. Maybe I can do a little Lord's Supper talk now. We're all members of the body. We have a very significant calling, and not all the members look the same. Some members are weaker and need to be more protected. But they're still significant, right? That's right. Um, you know, if someone has a really, you know, a, a, a nice presentation, they're handsome or pretty, or they have an athletic build or something, it's like, yeah, they're, you know, they're, they can be a prominent person, and if they're charismatic and they have great influence on people that's all fine that's great do you know there's some people that don't come off that strong but are just as crucial right some people are more visible that they have a little bit more social strength automatically some people aren't like that so much but they're just as crucial they need to be tended to more not less and i don't mean coddling them like they're in a a different class i mean like your liver your liver is pretty important but it's not outside your torso area and it's showing you know it's in a little piece of plastic it's like hey nice liver that's gross the liver is not that way it's supposed to be hidden it's not supposed to be outside and shown 
It's supposed to be hidden and covered and protected. But man, it's important. You want that liver person doing his or her thing because they're filtering the blood. We need their intercession and their exhortations or whatever they're doing in a non-prominent way. They're fulfilling the mission of Christ and we die without that person. But they don't look like they're that important. We need a body theology. Instead of just looking at the people that look important, oh, they're the important ones. That's not the way the kingdom works. The, the king's way always makes a body, which means we got to find one another and love one another and fellowship one, with one another and act like a team rather than an assembly. Come on. You see how that works? Right? Okay, so be honest with me. How many of you find my hand to be ugly? Not that, okay, one, but not that many. And maybe it's because you're far enough away. It's not a particularly ugly hand, actually. It's fine, right? And there's no offense with me showing you my hand. There's no offense. There's nothing inappropriate. But what if my hand, same hand, same hand, were over there by itself? Now, that would be offensive and gross, it's just amazing, the same hand that's not so bad looking, when it's attached to the body, it's completely normal. Same good looking hand unattached to the body completely freaks us out because it's got to have a context. A hand has to have the body. If it's disconnected, it's gross, it's weird. Sometimes we live that way. And the angels might be saying, or whatever, spiritual people can look and discern with gross. It's like, no, this is the way we do church here. We just support the great celebrities. It's like everything's disjointed. The whole point is be a body together. That's the whole point. That's the way we embody the king. We've defined Christianity as like this public face thing. And as long as that's intact, everything's good. And Jesus is like, I don't look at any of that. You do. I don't, I can't even, Jesus would say, I'm overstating it right now. I don't even see that. And you guys call it church and I can't even see it. I'm looking for a body. I'm looking for a bride. Where this, this pinky that is not, doesn't seem that significant is a crucial part of this unit. And this unit is attached to the arm. And the whole thing works together. That is what the king died, rose, and ascended to create. And he's appointed five, kind of a coincidence, but it's perhaps just a coincidence, five ministries that no body they know, body, know, K-N-O-W. They know the body and they seek to build it rather than build a celebrity ministry. That's, that's what you call like a red hot rebuke. We tend to build the high profile celebrity kind of ministries or have something. He's just wanting to build a body. So there's five ministries that work together that say we um, we see that body. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, shepherds and teachers. We're going to build that body. That's what our leadership is for. So the people are activated and released to be body members. Not just to, not just to do what we call ministry, but to build the body by adding people and building up those who are in it. Very, very important. And by the way, I'm going to slip this in. This is one of the things celebrated at the Lord's Supper. When Jesus said, this is my body, 
in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul took that and then started ta talking about the body of Christ. Yeah. Just follow the context. He's picking up on Jesus' language. He says, you must discern the body. Because he's seeing the members relating to one another as family. You can't get more organic family than the body metaphor. If we're a body, we're a family. There's no two ways about it. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. When you, see, when you use body member, uh, metaphor, you're talking family. right? And Paul's using that language in 1 Corinthians 12, after chapter 11, when he talked about the Lord's Supper. You can't leave people out of that supper because they're not in the same class as you, but they're believers. Let me remind you, he instituted this and said, this is my body, this is my blood. You can't take that covenant meal and be against covenant the way you eat it. You have to eat like a family because you are a body. That's why when they would leave one another out and, and still eat a covenant meal, Paul says you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. This is a great lead-in for the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Eating. Because you're, you're eating a covenant meal, but you're breaking covenant in relationships. You're breaking covenant in relationships, but then you're eating a covenant meal. Guess what? Your immune system's going to break down. Your body is going to start to separate the way you've separated the body. And after separating the body, waltzed right into a Lord's Supper covenant meal, declaring how unified the body is. Paul's like, you can't get away with that. Your, your body will break down because you're breaking down the body. So it was pretty important. Well, back to these five ministries. And we'll, we'll get there to the text in just a second. The five ministries know the body. They should. And they build, five ministries, they build this body. That's what they're about. The body, body, body. It has a lot to do with unity. It has a lot to do with finding our place. It has a lot to do with just relationships and treating one another like the family that Paul describes when he's describing body. When one member suffers, other members suffer with it, right? You know, probably very few of us thought of our pinky toe today. Probably very few. Maybe none. There might be no person here who thought, my pinky toe, and think anything you want. I love it, I hate it, uh, um, it, it exists. Whatever thoughts you had is probably very rare. But if you're walking through your house at a good pace and you clip a table leg with your pinky toe, every single member of your body is going to salute that toe and know it exists and pay attention to it because it's a part of the body. And it's even going to affect the way you walk. I mean, there are professional athletes who are sidelined for weeks and sometimes more with something called turf toe. Because if those tendons or whatever that is, I think it's a really bad strain. Uh, and, uh, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Not strain, but sprained. You can't run. It doesn't matter how good he might be at catching the ball or shooting it. If he can't get there, then it, the rest of the body doesn't even matter. And it's all because of one toe. 
So that's the kind of honor Paul's talking about that builds the body when we honor. Not just, that's an illustration. The pain is an illustration of the kind of attention and honor Paul is saying throughout that chapter that we need to develop this body that extends our king into the world. Now, let me show you from Ephesians 4. Okay, my point there was that for disciples, every one of us has a place. We have to play our role as a team in love, as family with one another. Implications for the church. We've already begun that, uh, but I'm going to take you there if you want to go there in Ephesians 4. All right? Ephesians 4, verse 7. Well, really at the beginning of the chapter, 4.1. You could, you could turn there if you want, <clears throat> and I'll... I'll read a few verses in the first paragraph here. This is the therefore Paul's exhorting the, the, the Ephesians. Okay, first three chapters of Ephesians were about the gospel. There's the, this grace working again. What God accomplished and our identity as a body for the first three chapters. Paul then says, therefore, I exhort you. Now he's calling them to action. And as he calls them to action, he gives further definition of the church. So I exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. You hear that? First three chapters, gospel, new community, that's who you are. Therefore, I implore you, walk in a manner worthy of what we just talked about. You see the exhortation? First identity, then he exhorts. And this exhortation is not just victory over personal sin, it's creating a body. That's what he's talking about. Listen to these words. With all humility. Sorry, I had to adjust this. I was losing it a little. With all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Bond of peace. Okay, that's not just avoiding conflict. It's creating family. There's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There's only one. We're all on the same team. We don't have different hopes. We don't have different baptisms. We are unified by all these singular aspects of the gospel. Body, spirit, hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we each have grace to help with the body. But how does that grace get distributed? Well, he's going to back up and explain how that happens. He quotes a text from Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Okay, what does that mean? Well, just really quick, in Psalm 68, which he's quoting, the beginning of that psalm is the phrase, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. You ever heard that chorus? Let God arise. Okay. Thank you, because that made me feel like I actually sang it right. <clears throat> uh, my voice is rough. So let God arise, his enemies be scattered. That's ascension imagery. What, it, what they're saying is let God rise up in judgment and warfare. He, he'll, he'd come down from Mount Zion and fight with his people. And then later in Psalm, uh, same Psalm, 68, verse 18, he goes back to his throne after fighting. He led captive. The text in the Old Testament in Psalm 68, 18 says, you've ascended on high. There's ascension. 
Paul's saying, okay, this is that in Christ. This happened. You've ascended on high. You've led captive your captives. You received gifts. The Old Testament says received. New Testament says give. Even among the rebellious also that the Lord may dwell there. But it's the same action. Receiving gifts and giving gifts is the same dual action. Here's why. Um, the imagery is that of Mount Zion, where God's throne is. We're looking at it from the front, so it looks like goalposts. In a very crude drawing, this is where God sits, okay? Let's just do it like that. He comes down to fight with his people. They win the victory. The typical practice of kings in the ancient Near East, which is the imagery being used here, is that when a one kingdom or nation sacks another one, they get plunder. You know, sadly, they, you know, they kill a lot of you know, many, but they'll take the valuables from their temples. They're wealthy people, and sometimes like Daniel experienced, valuable people who are still young and capable of being formed and manipulated, and they'll do things to them so that they stay loyal. They'll take people so they have wealth, they have treasures, and they have people that they plunder. So the king will receive all those gifts. And then upon his return, and in this case it's Yahweh going back up to Mount Zion, he'll parade on his way up, he'll parade the victory and the plunder he had and give the gifts that he plundered to the people so that they can function better in his nation and under his dominion. So that's the imagery being used here, that Jesus came down, he won the victory, and on his way back up, he gave the gifts that he plundered, he gave them to his people. So Paul's saying those five gifts are, in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now here's, here's where this gets interesting. Um, I hope you're following this, it's kind of a, it's kind of a messy sketch. But if this is Mount Zion, if this is where Jesus in heaven is ascending again, he's got to ascend through the air. He goes back up when he ascends after victory. He doesn't just go up on any old mountain. He goes up through the heavens. These heavens are where all these, these um, mean devils with horns are ruling, they have frowns, they, they rule the earth over sinful people, and in particular, they inspire government oppression and other sins within that, oppressing and ruling people in a negative way. Jesus defeated them. And when he ascended, he rose up through them, above them, to say, I am now ruling over you, and he took his throne. As he was ascending, he plundered them. Because these were the ones holding these ministries. These powerful people who bear the humble meekness of Christ. All right? They're powerful, but their desire is to build a body, not to be celebrity, you know, speakers or whatever. Their agenda is to build a body. They're the ones held captive by these powerful, these powerful uh, evil beings. So when Jesus won the victory over them, he specifically said, okay, now I got these five ministries. 
I'm going to give them to the church to build the church to become a body. So here's the pattern. Jesus ascends on high. Here's Jesus up here. Here's his crown. So this represents Jesus. He ascends on high. He gives the five ministries because he plundered them from here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These five equip the saints to do the work of service. And that work builds the body. That's all in the text. We didn't read it all. And when, I, when we say body, we mean a covenant family, as we already illustrated. Are you following me? Yeah. See the pattern? See the links? How do we get to this family or this body? It's built by saints who are equipped. How do they get equipped? By these five ministries. Where do these five ministries come from? They were liberated from these bad guys by this king. That's the pattern. So it works going in reverse in a sense. If we have a family, we're living in accordance with this victory. If we don't have a family, if we're an attendance culture and we're broken up, denominated and everything else, this link is broken. So under whose power do we live as a community? Maybe not as individuals who love the Lord and receive his blessing, but as a community, we're not necessarily in perfect sync with our king. We're rather in harmony with other powers. Which is why Paul re-preached the gospel to the Romans because they were divided. And so he re-preached the gospel so the gospel would make them a family again, which is exactly what Romans is about. Talking about justification and then newness of life and then the new community, Gentiles and Jews, brings them together. Then he says, now I exhort you, give your life as a living sacrifice. And then he talked about how to love one another. <laughs> it was the whole goal of the epistle. And then he says near the end, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Because once you get this back, you're going to take out that principality over your city. So he linked it. So when I see King Jesus... I see the immediate result is five ministries that equip the saints to build the body. That's why I go for this down here because I'm going for that. I'm not just into being a family. When it comes to relationships, I'm average. I'm right in the middle. I'm not all awkward and weird, but neither am I Scott Volk, a friend of ours who's just very, very engaging and sanguine you know, and people like him are just real easy to just make people feel comfortable. And he loves connecting with people. I'm not that extreme, but I'm not the other extreme either. I'm just right in the middle. It's, in other words, it's not like my thing. I go for family not because it's just, it's just who I am. It's partly who I am. It's because I love King Jesus. And I see the connection here. And I want him embodied in the church. I can't just see whatever going on and just not feel it and have to take it to prayer and pre then preach the gospel. I'm not that way. My vision is of the king, and I see him embodied. So when we talk about the ascension, we preach the good news. Jesus is king. He's exalted over these powers. But according to Ephesians 4, that means the body must be built his way. Not according to our denominational inheritances or our popular non uh, denominational, charismatic, uh, whatever traditions we have, any extreme from liturgical to low church, whatever it is, okay, it, 
the church has got to be according to the biblical vision if we want to embody King Jesus. Or else we could wish our way you know, right out of this as much as we want, but we still have dominion. Uh, the, the devil still has dominion in our, in our city the way he should not. So that's, that's, why I, that's why I do this. That's why I try to do family. And that's the way it was from the very beginning. Male and female, Adam and Eve. What did he tell them? Subjugate the earth. Rule. Rule. Because through family, through the multiplying, through the, the strengthening and perpetuating of family, this dominion gets worked out on the ground. So that's why I see the ascension uh, related directly to the body. The implication for the body is we have, we have to become a family. And when you read those texts in Ephesians, that's exactly where Paul is coming from. When he says, be tolerant, don't let the sun go down on, on, your, on your anger. Because there's way more at stake than just having a heavy heart or a broken relationship. It's the very kingdom of God being made practical versus these demonic beings who when they see division, they're like, okay, I'm defeated, but I still get to rule here. That's what we want to get rid of. That's what we want to expunge. And on the positive end, see the glory of our king. So there's a lot to pray about. Anyway, that's the, the wonder of the ascension. The ascension is very important. <clears throat> and of course, it's from his ascended place that he pours out the spirit. But now we will end with our last wonder and, and be very brief about it. This is Jesus' return. The ascension, one of its characteristics is that it implies the return. According to Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, the same Jesus you saw go up in the cloud will return in the same way. So that's another reason why. We, we tend not to preach the ascension because it implies body, and that's a little uncomfortable oftentimes, and it implies the return, which speaks of judgment, as well as end times vindication. And we have a hard time, especially in a wealthy and free um, culture, judgment and hoping in something we don't have yet are not things we do naturally. Did that make sense? Let me talk briefly about the return of the Lord and how it's a wonder. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, which means he will come back and every single soul will stand before him. Everyone. We will be judged based on, according to Paul in Romans, our, our deeds and be rewarded because we're free of the wrath of God. The rest of the world will be judged coming to a, what Jesus calls a resurrection of condemnation. But Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. You would be blown away by how many references, clear and explicit and implied, how many references there are to the coming Lord, coming judgment, coming rewards, coming hope of the resurrection. It is all over the New Testament. We oftentimes gloss right through it because we're not used to being sensitive to those passages. They're all over the place. Even when Paul talks about the hope of glory, I mean, that's, that's exactly what he's talking about. And it's meant to be pressed down with a, a, a blessed weight of impression on our souls. He's coming back, and that's the age we're living for. He's coming back, and that's the age we're living for. Be faithful now in a few things. You'll be ruler over much there. 
We don't have time to read a ton of those passages, but you'll find them very easily throughout the New Testament. So here's the good news. Jesus Christ is coming back, and here's what he will do. He will save all of Israel. He will shout and raise the dead. His righteous followers will obtain immortal bodies and eternal inheritance and vindication. The wicked will, will experience the second death outside the eternal city, where there will also be death itself will be eliminated in the second death. And so will Hades. So it's absolutely final. All of history from day one, even before there was sin, all of history was looking for the day of the Lord, the accomplishment of God's plan. Without sin, if there was no fall, and now that there was a fall, even with sin compromising our side of the equation, God delivered us from that if we believe, we're all going for the day of the Lord. When Jesus appears, the Son of Man will he find faith on the earth. That's the day we're going for. That's our, what do you call, our goal. It's our, it's our, um, it's, we calibrate by that. What, what did you say? Was there a? It's the finish line. It's the goal. And it's also how, we, it's like a tuning fork. It's how we tune our lives. It's the true north. It's a barometer of sorts. Jesus will shout and raise the dead. He'll bring an end to this evil age. He will judge the world. He will eradicate all evil in every place forever. He will destroy death. He will establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven from Jerusalem. He will rule heaven and earth with his followers, his bride. The human redeemed company, the church, will rule with him as a bride. So we're not to the son of God that way. And we'll rule from that place with him. He will renew all of creation I mean, I understand there to be different things. There's tribulation and there's millennium. I believe in that literally. So the renewal of all creation comes after that. But generally speaking, this is all what happens when Jesus returns. He'll renew all of creation. He'll bring every bit of it back into harmony with God and his original purposes, creating an eternal environment where God is all in all. What does this mean for us as disciples? We should live with sobriety. We should be sensitive to the way we conduct ourselves. It's what the Bible says to do. Be self-controlled. Uh, uh, self because the day is nearing, be sober and self-controlled for the sake of prayer. It even talks about church. Gather together. Don't forsake the assembly, especially as you see the day drawing near. Sobriety. But it also says, it also tells disciples we should live in hope. Our hearts should be filled with hope. Not general hope, his hope. General hope is good, too. We're looking forward to the meal. We're looking forward to good days ahead. We have hope for those reasons. But we should develop our hope for the age to come. That takes praying in the Spirit, meditating in the texts, and being together. We should live for God's coming kingdom and not this world. That's what the return implies for disciples. For the church, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Paul says... You're declaring the Lord's death till he comes, which means we are what scholars would call an eschatological community. It means we're a last day's community. We embody the kingdom now that's coming then. We show the world what the meek Christ looks like now because we have this radical fellowship with one another. But we're also pointing to the fact that means our king is coming back. So take the mercy while it's here. And we're here to embody it and give it and even lay our lives down for it. 
So that's why, that's why this body is so important. It even embodies the day that's coming. And Jesus emphasized this particularly in Luke's gospel. And I got my three minutes till 5.15, where he says, I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine with you again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. So our Lord's, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a family meal under the Lordship of Jesus, during which we remember our deliverance from Egypt, thanking God for the body and blood, having fellowship with one another and pointing toward the day when he returns. It's what we do as Jesus' families. And it's in that light that we make disciples, building up the bride. We're supposed to look like the age to come in our church form, pointing toward his coming, inviting people in. And there you have it. So I'm going to close there. And we're going to have Trinity lead us when we're down there. Do, do you want me to pray or do you want to come up and do something? Oh, you're going to give instructions after I pray. Okay. So this is just to close this session and to pray for impartation. Uh, in fact, let's do this. Let's stand and we'll do this quickly. With this proclamation of the gospel, I believe the kingdom is present in a special way. The king is present. And I want to pray for those who are ill or need some kind of healing. Um, if you're willing for someone to lay hands on your, like your shoulders, you're willing for someone to touch you because not everyone may want that and that's okay. But if, if that applies to you, just raise your hand where you are. And I'm going to ask a couple of people to come around you and just put hands on your shoulders or something. If you want healing, but you don't want hands laid on you, I'm going to just pray for you in this general prayer. There's a brother in the middle. Let's make sure there's some folks around him. Please keep your hand up because of the way we're seated. We want to make sure you're seen before your hand goes down. Okay? And I'm asking you guys to pray for them. I'll lead in the prayer in a moment, but I'm asking you to begin now. We just speak healing in Jesus' name. Lord, we believe you for healing. Jesus. Lord, in all of these ways, we pray your kingdom would come. That your dominion would come into these precious lives, souls, and bodies right now in Jesus' name. Yes, Lord, we believe you for miracles. We believe you for testimonies, for the glory of God. As your saints pray for one another, God. As your body acts like the body, praise God. Praise God. Father, where those who have hurting hearts or their minds are troubled. We pray for peace right now, for your word to quicken to their hearts, for your dominion to come, and just make shalom. I speak this over you, I pray shalom. King Jesus, wonderful grace on your life, I pray in Jesus' name. Father, we pray for an outpouring of your spirit. We pray for revival in these precious brothers and sisters and their families, in their churches, Lord, in this church. We pray for the outpouring of your spirit. 
Father, I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to see and understand Jesus as king in this great and glorious gospel in all of its beauty, Lord. Let us not be overwhelmed, but let us be at peace as we explore these things on our own. Give grace for that. Oh, and just like the word became flesh, may this message of your gospel become our flesh in daily life. I pray for your blessing on your people. May God bless you and keep you. May, may he cause his face to shine on you. May his countenance rise up on you and give you peace. Jesus is King and Lord, alive from the dead. In his name we pray, amen.